Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions, and you can visit our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we're very, very grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. We have a fantastic show for you today, and we're very pleased to be joined by two great guests. Dr. Mary McAuliffe is Assistant Professor in Gender Studies in University College Dublin. She has published widely on aspects of Irish women's history, gendered and sexual violence in war, and social, political, and public history. Her most recent works include a biography of 1916 veteran Margaret Skinner, and as a consultant and a contributor on the T.G. Cahar documentary, Cougar Er Manah. Liz Gillis is a historian and researcher on RTE's history show. She is the author of such books as Women of the Irish Revolution, Revolution in Dublin and the Fall of Dublin. You're both very welcome to the show. Liz, I might start with you first. Could you tell us about the organisations for radical separatist women that existed before the First World War? Yeah, and thanks a lot for having us on the show. There was a number of organisations for women that were operating and were active for various reasons. And there's a crossover with them. So one, I think that is one of the most important groups is Nina Heron, which was set up by Maud Gaughan in 1900. It was a militant Republican organisation based mainly in Dublin. You had the crossover in terms of its membership in their background, so working class women with middle class women, and they had a lot of different interests, but the main one being the independence of Ireland, but women's rights was a huge focus. You also had the suffragette movement, with Hannah Shee Skeffington. So those two organisations are really, really involved in putting forth the focus of women's rights, the idea of separation for Ireland from Britain. And they were really on the ground pushing forth their ideas, but actually making a difference. An example I'll give you with Nina Naharan. They set up schools in the north inner city of Dublin for boys and girls. Education was really, really important. And also you have uh, Will and Nina helping to set up the Penny Dinners, which still runs today in the Street and Little Flower Hall, because they saw that kids in the inner city were not being fed. There was dire poverty and they set out to address that. Propaganda is really at the forefront of both of these organisations. The women proved very early on that they were really adept in the use of propaganda. And Coming Amon, Coming Amon is the big one that is formed in April 
1914. And that brings together a lot of members from both of those organizations. Inina Neheran actually becomes a branch of Cumanamon. In fact, it was the most militant branch of Cumanamon when it comes to the Easter Rise in 1916. And Mary, you're going to be generalizing, obviously, but can we talk about the social background of the women who got involved in radical nationalist politics and other radical politics for the First World War? Well, again, obviously, um, in a very general sense, it depended on the organisation. As Liz said, Inina Nehiren, for example, did have uh, women from different social backgrounds, particularly as it was based in Dublin. Uh, so you had the younger women from uh, working class backgrounds. You had somebody like Helena Maloney and later newspaper Ban Nehiren would have been from, say, a lower middle class working class background. Maud Gone, of course, would have been a very much different background from that. And you had that mixture. In the Irish Women's Franchise League, you had a mixture, mostly middle class women, but some educated working class women who were committed to the cause. Of course, then you had the Irish Women's Workers Union, which was uh, set up, of course, to represent the women who were workers in places like Jacob's Factories. It was set up by Delia Larkin after her brother had set up the ITGW gym. But you also had that cross-fertilization that, that Liz mentioned between all of these organizations. And I think it really comes to uh, fruition when we had the uh, 1913 lockout, where you see women like Countess Markovic, like Kathleen Lynn and Madeleine French-Mullen, all very much from an Anglo-Irish upper middle class, upper class background, working in uh, Liberty Hall with the working class women from the Irish Women's Workers' Union. That isn't to say class politics doesn't play a part. It does, um, because the representation of women, particularly, uh, you know, campaigns like Access to Third Level Education were very much from a middle class focus. And, and we could argue that the campaign for the vote was very much about middle class women. And when it is granted in 1918, it is two middle class women, really, that that have the vote, educated women, women over the age of 30, women with certain property qualifications. But in many ways, these radical politics allowed a sort of fluidity among class relationships that wouldn't generally be allowed in mainstream society just because of the mores and class politics of the day. And particularly if we look at the women's section of the Irish Citizen Army, here you see radical women, women who are, who, whose politics take a turn to the left, very much under the influence of James Connolly and his ilk. You have Kathleen Lynn, you have Madeleine French-Mullen, you have Markovic, you have women like Margaret Skinner who fights the rising with the ICA in 1916, who is uh, from a working class background, but a family that is climbing that class ladder in, in Glasgow, all of her sisters become teachers and her family really is lower middle class by the time um, 1916 comes about. And then you have all of the working class women who are in different branches of common amon around the, the city and who also the trade union women like Rosie Hackett, like Jenny Shanahan, uh, who join the Irish Citizen Army post lockout. So there is that mixture. But I think the Irish Citizen Army women's section is probably the one where we see uh, the fullest amount of mixing. And the other thing I wanted to mention about the organizations for women prior to 1916 is they, they are very politically aware. And that doesn't mean they, they collaborate with one another, they cooperate together, for example, they, they a lot of them collaborate together to campaign to have women's suffrage included in the third Home Rule Bill in 1912, unsuccessfully, 
1918, when a lot of the women haven't forgotten uh, that the IPP turned its back on women's suffrage um, and vote for Sinn Féin. But they also have arguments about what Countess Markievicz called the three great issues of Ireland, you know, at the time, the women's issue, the issue of labour and Irish freedom. Um, you know, is it suffrage first above all else or is it get Ireland free first and then, then we'll deal with women's suffrage? And there's a big discussion once coming among is set up uh, with the suffrage women who, who don't appreciate the common among women in 1914 positioning themselves as auxiliaries of the Irish volunteers rather than a women's organisation standing in its own. Now, that will change as the years go by and the women become more radical, particularly post-1916. But I think we have to see in the women's groups pre-1916 a political sophistication that's often missed in the history books, women who could have discussions and debates and arguments with one another, but still at the same time collaborate on issues that are of interest across the board. And all of this is sort of a febrile atmosphere of politics, radicalism, ideas of equality uh, that really comes to fruition in that radical promise in the 1916 proclamation of full and equal citizenship. What happens afterwards, of course, is another story. And Liz, there is a difference, though, between nationalist or Republican women who joined the Irish Citizen Army and the ones who were in Common Man, isn't there? I think in the case of the Irish Citizen Army women, they are more radical in their outlook, as in because they are coming from the background of labour issues. And also a lot of the Irish Citizen Army women were from the working class. So it's something that you see with those activists, they carry that through them throughout their life. It's activism that they never give up on. I suppose it would be a little bit like the Irish volunteers and the Citizen Army, and that you did have a lot more lower middle class women that joined coming them on. The exception, of course, again, would be the Amina Nehair and branch because they had that history of activism with each other from 1900. But in terms of coming together and trying to make a difference on the ground, as well as being Republican activists, the women do come together and you know see that as part of their job, their work as well, but probably just a bit more vocal in terms of the Irish Citizen Army women. So Mary, we might talk about some of the activists who were involved in 1916, and one that you've written about is Margaret Skinner. Could you tell us about her, please? Yes, Margaret is a, a very interesting character, and really I, I'd always known her name, but I came across her really when Liz and I were writing the book, 77 Women, we were there, the 77 women of the Easter Rising, uh, who were the 77 women who were arrested and taken to Richmond Barracks. Now, Margaret wasn't among them because, of course, she had been wounded when she was in the garrison at the Royal College of Surgeons. So instead of being marched off to Richmond Marricks after the surrender, she was taken off to St. Vincent's Hospital to recover. And this is where we pick her up, I suppose, in terms of her memoir that she writes in 1917, Doing My Bit for Ireland, which is a very interesting first-hand eyewitness account from a woman who was based in a garrison or in an outpost during 1916, fighting the rising with Commandant Michael Mallon and Mark, Countess Markovich, second in command, and the Irish Citizen Army outpost at the Royal College of Surgeons. 
And so how did a Scottish-born woman end up in Dublin in 1916? But of course, she's, she has Irish connections. Her father was from Monaghan. Her mother was first-generation Irish. Uh, I think her family originally were from Meath. So she was, as many of the diaspora were in Glasgow at the time, first-generation Irish and first-generation Irish that were born into a time when Glasgow not unlike Dublin and other cities in Ireland, particularly among the Catholic population, uh, were being very influenced by cultural nationalism. Margaret is very much an Irish language advocate, joins the Gaelic League at a very young age, as do all of her siblings in her family. She was born in Coatbridge outside of Glasgow initially, and then they moved to Glasgow. But, you know, you have huge Irish populations here. And we know that by 1914, Margaret is a militant suffragette, She's been uh, campaigning for the right to vote with the Women's Social and Political Union. She's a militant uh, nationalist. She is already in uh, training the Fianna branch in Glasgow with some of the men. She joins the uh, Anne Devlin branch of Common Amman in Glasgow in 1915 and becomes one of its leaders. She's also, from we, we know from her memoir, uh, bringing the makings of bomb-making equipment uh, when she visits Dublin, particularly in 1915. And there was always this idea that Margaret came to Dublin in 1915, visited with Countess Markovich, and she gets radicalised here. That's not the case. If you look at her early life in Glasgow, and of course Glasgow has a huge working class population with its shipbuilding and all of those industries that are on the Clyde. Um, they have uh, you know, a huge socialist influence, um, particularly Catholic socialism that Margaret is very uh, connected with. The Women's Social and Political Union, the feminists in Glasgow, are among the most militant and the most radical in the country, at that, in the United Kingdom at that time. Indeed, uh, they try to bomb the uh, uh, water supply that comes into Glasgow at one stage. I didn't find out if Margaret was involved in that, but uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if she was because it happened around the time she was in the organisation. So that militancy is already there with her and that militant nationalism is already there with her because many of um, the people like Markovich, like Pierce, like Connolly, particularly whom and Nora Connolly becomes her best friends, won't say meet for life, visit Glasgow and meet with these organizations and they give talks there. So when she comes to Dublin in 1915, she's already a fully formed militant nationalist and feminist. And so she's trusted by the leadership and she goes back to Glasgow after her visit. She's a teacher at this stage, back to school for the school term, knowing that she needs to come back to Dublin in 1916 at Easter time because something is going to happen. She might know the details, but she knows something is going to happen. And she does return, fights in the rising, uh, is one of the few women who actually is a militant. She um, had a very interesting uh, in terms of her femininity and, and masculinity and her ideas around that. When she was being a, a woman who was taking messages from the Royal College of Surgeons to the GPO, she dressed in her dress. But when she went up onto the roof and she was a good shot because she trained in a rifle club in Glasgow, she changed into the a male uniform Countess Markovich had, had made for her. And she talks about that, that in order to be a soldier for Ireland, she had to look like and dress like a soldier. And she insisted on leading a attack on a sniper nest that were pinning down the garrison in the Royal College of Surgeons. Uh, Mallon tried to stop her. She quotes the proclamation at him and she said, women are now on an equality with men, according to the proclamation. And she's wounded during that. 
And that is her in 1916. She then goes on to join the Republican Women's Tour in America, gives loads of speeches all around the place. Obviously, she recovers from the wounds, comes back, fights in the War of Independence, is anti-treaty in the Civil War. And like Liz says, like many of the women who are radicalized early, when they are late teens, early 20s, spends the rest of her life as an activist. Uh, she's a teacher, as I said, and gets a job as a teacher, joins the INTO uh, and commits herself to that activism for the rest of her life, ending up being the president of the INTO in 1956 and the chairperson of the women's section, the ICTU, uh, the, the first women's section in the ITGW in order to deal with women's workers' issues. So like so many of these radical women, she radicalized early and it became her life's work then for I think the three great causes, again, women workers, women's rights, and the rights of Ireland. And uh, she also was a brilliant teacher, apparently, and lots of her students talk very fondly about her. I've met a few women who were thought by her and said she was a brilliant teacher as well. And Liz, famously, after the rising of 1916, you know, the 16 leaders were executed and number imprisoned. Can you talk about how women were punished for their role in the rising? Well, you had 77 women arrested and imprisoned after the rising. And it was a, a shock at this because if you look at the Fall Courts garrison, the women were actually prepared to leave on the Saturday. You have the case in the GPO and in a number of garrisons where the women were told to leave once they knew the surrender was coming. But the priest had liaised with the British officer in charge and said, look, you know, it's too dangerous for the women to go out, let them stay overnight in the course and then the following morning, they would be able to go home. The following morning arrived and a lorry arrived and the women were taken from that garrison and brought up to Richmond Barracks, where you have the exception is the Anina women. Again, I'm always going back to the Anina women who are in the Marabone Lane distillery attached to the South Dublin Union garrison led by Amy Kant. And the men there told them to leave and they just simply refused because as Rose McNamara said, they shared the faith with the men of that week so they weren't going to abandon them now. And the thing about the women, a very important aspect of the role of women being involved in 1916 was keeping up the spirits and morale of the men. And there's great descriptions of while they're being marched down to the surrender point of Patrick Park, the men are trying to throw away their guns. The girls are picking up the guns and hiding them under their skirts. And the soldiers knew they had the guns on them, tell them to get rid of them. They refused. The CUNY sisters managed to smuggle guns into Richmond Barracks and hide them in the room that they were held in. They were held in Richmond Barracks for a night and were transferred then to Kilmainham Jail, the West Wing, the old part of Kilmainham, which just happened to be where the majority of the leaders were held before the executions took place. And what you find are amazing descriptions from the women of being there at those moments when the executions actually happen. You have Breedlines Thornton, who was in the forecourt, and she talks about how they heard the gunshots, were told one thing and another that it was the leaders being executed, that it wasn't the leaders being executed, and then, yes, actually, it was, and the impact that that had on them. And they were held in Kilmainham for about eight, ten days, because the authorities really didn't know what to do with them. They hadn't come up against this type of thing before, where women were really part of the conflict. You had 12 women who were seen to be the most dangerous, including Countess Markovic, Lena Maloney, who were transferred to Mountjoy Jail and later transferred to uh, prisons in England. 
but the remaining majority of the women were released. They were called together and basically, you know, told the good little girls and would be released. Will you promise to do that? Of course, they said yes. And as soon as they were set free, they hit the ground running. They knew that although they were defeated with the rising, it wasn't over. They had to rally support and they really set about doing that immediately and build that support quite quickly. So by the time December 1916 comes around, the majority of the prisoners, the men that were held in Frankok were released. They come home to a very different Ireland, an Ireland that they left. And when they left, it was people spitting at them, throwing things at them, jeering them. When they came back in December, they were welcomed back as heroes. And the women have to be thanked for helping create that sea change in public opinion. Now, Mary, one group that's mentioned quite a lot when you're reading about people's experiences in 1916 are the separation women. Who were they and why were they so opposed to the insurgents? Well, the separation women, I think, get a very bad press. Um, maybe some of it justified, but I would the, the vast majority is just, you know, taking a broad brush to a wide segment of people. The separation women were generally working class women whose husbands were away fighting in the British Army uh, during the First World War. And what they got were separation payments, money that was sent to them in order for, you know, to keep the family together, pay rent, whatever. Uh, the, the money that uh, was paid to their husbands was sent to the women. And interestingly, it's the first time a lot of women of working class towns and cities around the country had some money. And this is where the whole, um, I suppose, moral haze comes into it uh, in the condemnation of separation women. Maybe uh, some of them perhaps uh, would have used the, the money to have a good time themselves, maybe drinking too much, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's huge condemnation of these women with disposable incomes. When we know the vast majority of them were just using the money to actually feed and clothe and house their families. It was also presumed that the majority of these women, and, and again, this would be more than likely true, would have been more supportive of the war effort. Obviously, their family members were away fighting in the war, so they would have seen the rising as a stab in the back of their fathers, their brothers, their sons, uh, and therefore would have been very angry at the rebels in Dublin. Also, many of them were living in tenements in inner city Dublin, which were destroyed by or, or damaged by uh, the violence that broke out in 1916. And also quite a number of civilians from the communities around the different outposts, particularly uh, Henry Street, Moore Street and all that area around North inner city Dublin were killed. So uh, the majority of people killed in 1916 were civilians. Uh, and we can't get away from that, including children. And so the separation women are demonized as disloyal to the Republic as uh, the ones who threw the rebels as they went to, as they were arrested after the surrender and marched away uh, to prison or to Richmond Barracks and then on to Kilmainham. But I think we have to dig deeper into the whole concept of separation woman as uh, supportive of the Union, as hateful towards the rebels. As Liz said, in the propaganda, most of it carried out by the women, the political women after 1916, you see a sea change in Ireland. Now, the war goes on till the end of 1918, so uh, many separation women possibly changed their political status. And I know one of them uh, that I've written about, an Amelia Wilmot in Listowel and Kerry, who was a separation woman whose husband was off fighting the war, 
who during the War of Independence becomes a major conduit. She, she gets a job, as many of these separation women did, uh, with the RIC in the RIC barracks as a cleaner uh, and is a conduit for arms and ammunition that she basically steals out of the barracks for the North Kerry Flying Column. Now, that's just one example. But I think it, what it does is put a, a dent in our idea that all these separation women were bad, uh, mad and dangerous to know in many ways as, as they were coloured by many others, including women in common man who despise them in many ways. And some of them then commit their, I, I think after 1916, commit their politics to the cause of the Republic, despite the fact that their family members may still be on the Western Front at this stage. Uh, so I think we need to look and take a more nuanced view of who and what the separation women were uh, at this stage and not just dismiss them as those who were the enemy. Liz, you know, in 1916, it's not the whole story, but as Mary's been talking about, there was people jeering the rebels as they were being marched away. You mentioned as well, throwing things at them, including the women, the so-called separation women. But in 1918, by contrast, you know, the Republicans of Sinn Féin win a massive majority. And it seems to me anyway that the activism leading up to that, things like the conscription crisis and also people working against the Spanish flu, incidentally, and the role of women played a big part in that. Would you agree with me? Would you go along with that? Yeah, I would, John. And 1918 is a turning point for, for so many people and it politicises a lot of people. It politicises a lot of people that may not have had any interest in national politics. When we look at the women, the anti-inscription campaign is huge. And you see this very early on where the British government decides, you know, the war didn't look like it was ending. They needed men for the army. Irishmen hadn't been conscripted, they hadn't introduced it in 1916 when they introduced it across the UK and they decided, well, we'll conscript in Ireland and the response from everyone was huge and a very loud resounding no. And in the national campaign, you literally have men, women, children from all walks of life taking part in that national campaign. You've got the pledge. You have the labour movement, the general strike, which was hugely, hugely successful. And all of the activism, it does flick a switch in people's minds. But whereas the women were really involved in that and in terms of coming along and the uh, trade union movement and so on, the women themselves realised that in this campaign, they actually hold some power. And they realised that they should have their own event. And that happens on the 9th of June, 1918. It's called Law Amon, where basically the women of Ireland signed their own pledge. And it differed from the national pledge that the women realised if the men were conscripted into the British Army, then women would have to fulfil or fill their place in the workforce. So they basically said, if you try and conscript any man, we won't take their place in the workforce. So thanks to the government, you'll get your army, but your country will literally come to a standstill. And what you have, there's great newspaper, of course, two thirds of the women of Ireland signed this pledge. There were certificates issued. It took place in City Hall in Dublin. You have 40,000 women in Dublin signing the pledge or taking the pledge there. But villages up and down this country it was organised. The smallest villages, you can have examples of 300 women marching and taking the pledge. And what you see, there's a difference here between Cumann Amon 
and the volunteers because with that thread conscription the ranks of the volunteers swelled beyond like you know unbelievable proportions with guys just joining thick and fast but when the threat disappeared so we know that conscription wasn't introduced and when that threat disappeared then those men basically left the volunteers who so were left that little core nucleus of diehard republicans the opposite happens with coming among you see after law and among branches of coming among just popping up all over the country that moment politicized so many women in this country and they just go from strength to strength and also you see the women organizing there when it comes to the 1918 general election the women who had proven themselves to organize, they just keep building on that. And, and we know with the 1918 general election, two women were put forward for Sinn Féin as candidates. In my personal opinion, they should have put more women forward because the women had proven themselves. They could do the work. You know, when the men were in prison, who was carrying the torch? It was the women. They were great organizers. And you see then the women really driving forth the, the campaign, the election campaigns at great risk to themselves because it was illegal to do that. It was legal to use a car in an election campaign. And there's a great photograph of Joe McGuinness's nieces. Again, Friedlein's Thornton was his niece. And she and her cousins are campaigning on his behalf. They could have been arrested for doing that. So 1918, it is a moment that just awakens so many people, but really lights a, a, a fire under the women of Ireland. And Liz, Constance Markovitz, who we spoke about, was elected for the Liberties in central Dublin. Can you talk about that a little bit? Constance Markovitch, so she's one of the two women put forward. Uh, Winifred Crane was the other woman in Belfast. And the difference there was that Countess Markovitch, although she was in prison at the time, she had so much support on the outside. So her constituency that she stood in was St. Patrick's Ward, which is the area of the Liberties. So she's in prison, she can't do that. But my God, the campaign here was amazing. You have meetings taking place in Leonard's Corner. And as Mary mentioned earlier on with the IWFL, Hannah Steve Stephenson, the women's suffragette movement, they're campaigning on behalf of Countess Marcus. So the, the forces are coming together. Found a great article or a, a little sort of, sort of poster in one of the newspapers of the time for this big election march um, that took place in and around the Liberty, starting at, I think it was, Black Pits, making its way to Cork Street, making its way to Allingham Buildings. And Allingham Buildings is, you know, it's long gone now, but it's just at the top of my road. So you can imagine there are meetings at this point at three o'clock, moving at half three, moving on at four o'clock. And our election office was actually in Thomas Street. So the people of the Liberties, the coming among women, in and around this area, which by that time, it was the Nina branch of coming among, so girls who had been out in 1916, they're all driving that home. That campaign, that successful campaign, could not have happened um, without the help of all of those people. And uh, yeah, Countess Barkovich, she stood in the Liberties and was elected by the people of the Liberties. And first female MP in, in Westminster and first female minister in Europe, I believe. Yeah, exactly. And, and like all of our comrades, that were elected in 1918. She didn't really enjoy the victory, not at that moment, because they were all in prison. And another thing that I'd like to just add to that, John, after Law and Amon, you had a proclamation issued by the authorities that uh, 
public gatherings, meetings, protest meetings, you couldn't actually hold them without getting permission from the authorities. And there had been an end date to the proclamation, so they'd run for a certain length of time. After Lawn Amon, there wasn't a proclamation issued and there was no end date. I know we're going to be touching on this later, but um, a lot of the work done by the women, it was sort of dismissed that it wasn't dangerous work. The women were organising protest meetings on behalf of Countess Markovich, Maud McBride and Kathleen Clark, who were in prison at that time. And one particular meeting took place at Foster Place, just down by the Bank of Ireland. And at that meeting, the women were battened by the police. One girl, Josie McGowan, who was um, a member of the union and who had been out at 16, um, she died as a result of the beating that she got. So very early on, you can see the women were putting themselves to the forefront. They were, in this case, risking their lives. And it was very, very important and very dangerous work that they did do. Well, Mary, I might ask you, what role did women play during the guerrilla campaign in the War of Independence? Well, of course, the role that they're often given in the history book is as the nurturers and carers. As Liz said, there was a common among branches sprung up all around the country. And I think at one stage there was over, uh, there's around 600 branches. So they're in every village and town and city, several in, in different cities, several branches around the country. And they organized themselves uh, to collaborate with the local Irish volunteers. Um, and mostly, you know, if we read the history books, it's about the nursing, the caring, the running, the safe houses, the archives, particularly the pension archives and the Bureau of Military History has shown us that there was a, a deeper involvement of women and a more dangerous, in many ways, involvement of women in the War of Independence and an involvement that was central to the conduct of what was really, in essence, a guerrilla warfare. Uh, without the women, I would argue, it couldn't have been conducted in the way that it was to the degree of success that it did have um, at this stage, because the women were doing way more than, and, and obviously the safe houses and the nursing uh, was, was absolutely vital, because an army, number one, marches on its stomach, but also if you have injuries, uh, the men couldn't go to the hospitals, they had to be taken care of in these safe houses, uh, and that's where they stayed. And it, it helped the flying columns be able to conduct themselves and go around the place by having these safe houses. But the women were intelligence gatherers uh, because they weren't on the run for the most part. They were the ones who were in the towns who could watch the comings and goings of uh, the auxiliaries and the Black and Tans and the RIC and any military that were stationed nearby uh, and feed that information to the local IRA commandants. And the men talk about this, that the, the women brought the information. They were also in charge often of arms dumps uh, and they were the ones who brought arms and ammunition and bomb making equipment to and from these arms dumps for ambushes or to secrete them away and protect them. The women talk about themselves, you know, cycling here, there and everywhere, because, of course, that's how most people got around, either on traps uh, drawn by horses or on donkeys or on bicycles. Although a number of women do have cars, but very few people had cars. So there's bicycling arms, ammunition, bomb making equipment to ambush sites. Um, and we know from even the very beginning, from Salahedbeg, for example, that there were women there. They may not have been exactly on the front lines, but they were not very far behind it, uh, a couple of hundred yards maybe, waiting, bringing the materials and then taking the materials away. The women helped disperse and hide the gelignite taken in Salahedbeg. And so from that very beginning, they continue to be that essential 
element of the War of Independence, of the uh, guerrilla warfare that was going on. And they paid for it in many ways. It took a long time for the Crown forces to recognise the essential role of women in uh, war. The women paid for it in terms of having their homes raided, having their personal safety impacted. Uh, many of them were beaten up. I, I particularly uh, recall a woman, a Julia Duffy from uh, County Longford, in her pension file. She talks about being raided constantly. She was a member of the local Cumannamon. Uh, raided constantly by the Crown forces. And at one stage, she was beaten so badly that nine of her teeth were beaten out of her head, basically. And, and she had to have the stumps pulled out in the following days by a dentist. And then she says, and then I continued my work for Ireland. So these women saw that violence that was visited on them, and some of them had their hair forcibly shaved, uh, some of them beaten very badly. Other aspects of the violence seems to be been either sexual harassment or worse. The women saw it as their suffering for Ireland because they saw their part as vital and they were committed to Ireland. And I think in large part, that commitment feeds into their intransigent stance then towards the treaty, because what they were fighting for was what was promised in the proclamation of 1916. And they never really deviate from that. Uh, and their importance in the War of Independence now being recognized was in many ways recognized by the men at the time. Dan Breen himself said that without the women, the war, and I'm paraphrasing here, the war couldn't have been carried out in the way that it was. Um, so yeah, the women are integral to the warfare in the War of Independence. Well, there's one of the things that we see in this period after 1916 and in the War of Independence, that a lot of female activists really come into their own and become very well known nationally. I'm thinking of people like Mary McSweeney and Kathleen Clark. Could you talk about that, please? As you said, Carol, the women do come into their own in terms of the different jobs that tasks that they have to do. Like Kathleen Clark after 1916 is the linchpin. Like she's effectively the most important person in the Republican movement. She was effectively in charge of the IRB, keeping control of that until the men were released. She is the driving force behind the Irish National Aid and Volunteer Dependence Fund. In terms of the propaganda war, the international propaganda war, Mary McSweeney is vital to that. And certainly after her brother Terence died on hunger strike, because, you know, the propaganda war is a very important aspect of this conflict. It wasn't just like a physical conflict. But in terms of organizers, you've got women like Leslie Price, who had proven herself in 1916. She was in and around the O'Connell Street area. Um, and she was so effective as an organizer that she was sent down to Cork to organize, attached to the West Cork Brigade of the IRA. So she's getting women together. She's setting up new branches of coming them on. And you have a word equivalent all across the country where the women are really fantastic and you could not have the productivity without them is the Irish Bulletin, the Republican news sheet that was produced to counter what was being reported in the mainstream media as to what was happening in Ireland because a lot of newspapers were censored and so on. And although it was produced by the Department of Publicity, Dahl Aaron's Department of Publicity, this was a completely underground production. So you have uh, Kathleen McKenna and a number of girls that were basically 
collating all the information. The information was gathered by the girls who come on. So like Leslie Price from around the country, information was being sent daily up to Dublin. And as Mary said, not many people had cars. So a lot of this information, it couldn't be sent, you know, through the postal service. So it had to be really delivered by hand. So you have, you know, great images of these girls cycling from village to village, passing on this information. A lot of that work has to be done at night. In certain areas, curfew was introduced. So we've got girls on their own in potentially very dangerous situations. One girl described seeing a patrol of military or auxiliaries, and she basically thrown herself into the ditch because she doesn't want to be seen by them, or worse. So this information is sent up to Dublin. It's collated by these girls. It's printed by these girls. And they're moving around Dublin because the authorities are literally on their tail all the time. One particular office that they had um, on Mulder Street, the auxiliaries happened to be in the room below. They couldn't even knock on the heating because if there was any sound above, it just might alert the authorities so they're sitting there with like wrapping newspaper newsprint around their their legs to try and keep warm but you look at the production of the irish bulletin and they've printed them they've released them in book form now and it was not only was it distributed across ireland it was distributed internationally and it was translated so you have like you know french versions and spanish versions so that propaganda war it really could not have happened without the women and one thing I'd also say about that is they never ceased in addition of the Irish bulletin it was printed and released right up until the truth so a huge huge success but that couldn't have been done without the likes of Kathleen McKenna and so on. And in fairness this is a question for both of you you know we mentioned violence against republican women activists but there's also violence against women by republicans in the period isn't there? I suppose a a lot of uh, research is being done at the present into violence against women during this period and specifically gendered violence. And uh, we've mentioned the fact that, um, you know, with the the raids on communal homes, women really are on the front line uh, during the War of Independence. and, And you have that violence coming into their kitchens and their homes when you consider there were upwards of, you know, 50,000 raids in, in 1920 on homes and communities. But we also have targeted violence against women by the IRA. For example, during the War of Independence, forcible haircutting is used as a weapon of war. And this is for women who are considered to be company keeping. And that would be any woman who is a young girl, usually, they'd be late teens and into their 20s, who was uh, suspected of, you know, stepping out with a, a soldier or a member of the RIC. Uh, or anyone, or even that she was interested in doing this, or she was caught writing letters, because oftentimes post offices were raided and the letters obviously read. And so their homes would be raided late at night uh, by gangs of men, uh, masked, ma- many times armed, and the girls would be iced in the house or brought outside, and they would be roughed up, and their hair would be shaved off. There's one particularly famous case in Tewham in County Galway, uh, Bridget Keegan, and there's um, descriptions of it in the newspapers, all the newspapers. And I think this is a very interesting point that people did know this was happening because the newspapers report this over and over again, weekly, monthly, national newspapers and local newspapers. So people are reading about these attacks and the girls are being named, which, of course, is a double shaming of them and what they were doing. 
what the men say to Bridget Keegan is, we'll teach you how to be an Irish woman, a proper Irish woman. And this is very interesting because, of course, these men will become the, the political and, and industrial and economic masters of the new Irish free state in which women will really have a, a secondary position. And when, when the construct of what it means to be a proper Irish woman is particularly narrow and focused, and these women who were seen as... I suppose they're they're considered in the same way as separation women, as uh, inadequate in their loyalty to Ireland and to the cause of the Republic, as a danger to the Republic, because it was suspected some of them might be passing on information. And the other group of women who were often attacked by the IRA were barrack servants, RIC barrack servants. It's part of the RIC boycott. Uh, because, of course, if you don't have the women coming in and cleaning and cooking, and oftentimes uh, they were cooking for the men who were in the garrison, that means the RIC have to spend their time doing that and less time policing. But also it is about basically making life in RIC barracks as difficult as possible. And this is very much you know, targeting working class women who possibly are the only ones bringing in a steady income into their families uh, and making them give up these jobs. And they get sent horrific threatening letters, um, uh, you know, saying they'll be killed or they'll be attacked. Some of them, gunshots are fired into their houses. Others are attacked and have their hair shaved off. And then on the other side, you do have common Amman women attacked by the Crown forces. There are also incidences of rape uh, and sexual assault. And we get incidences and reports of, for example, common among women being arrested and taken into jails and being searched by women searchers, strip searched and searched by the women, the lady searchers. But there would often be a man in the room while this is happening. Also, one or two women have reported in the in the bulletin, for example, that Liz mentioned that they were sus- suspicious that the woman searching them was actually a man dressed as a woman. And again, you see the mistreatment of women. So there's a real targeted gendered violence against women that was known about, that was reported, it was reported in the bulletin, it was reported in national and mainstream newspapers. And it's something that really is now being written back into the history books. I'd just like to add to that, that the women of Common Amman were also at risk from the IRA because the IRA didn't necessarily know what the women were doing. An example I'll give you would be Breed O'Malan, who, like Leslie Price, was an organiser for Coming Amon. So she's cycling around everywhere and, you know, helping to organise branches of Coming Amon. But there was a female spy who, unfortunately for Breed, the IRA thought was poor. And she had arranged to meet the local IRA in Kildare. And luckily for her, she met a friend, volunteer, Sean Patrick, who basically there said not to go, don't turn up to the meeting because they're planning an ambush, they're planning to kill you. Because they thought that she was the spy. Uh, somehow she managed to make contact with them and had to prove to them that she was not the spy. But only for she met Sean Patrick, she would have been killed by her own. So there was that risk as well to the women. Now, Mary, we might move on to the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the reaction of coming a man to the treaty. I'd say every school child in the country who studied coming a man knows coming a man or says coming a man was anti-treaty. And, and for the l- large extent, this was true, although obviously when we dig down into it, it is a bit more complicated than that. 
But the executive and the leadership of Cumann were, for the most part, anti-treaty. And they are the first organization to have a convention to consider the treaty uh, and they vote against it. Uh, in the debates, uh, in the reports and the newspapers of the debates, we see the arguments being put forward. And the main sticking point for the women was the oath of allegiance, because they, as Margaret Skinner says in her contribution, she would not consider any man who took an oath of allegiance to a foreign power or a foreign monarchy a, a real Irish man. And they make that argument that what they were fighting for was the Republic proclaimed in 1916, and that what the treaty was going to deliver was certainly not that Republic. And you can see that in the Dole debates as well, where the six women TDs all take an anti-treaty stance. Now, they've made their points prior to the convention of Cumann and that may have had some influence. But for the most part, the women actually were very stalwart in their political opinion themselves. And at the convention, it is the anti-treaty stance is passed. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't Cumann and very senior Cumann women who were pro-treaty. We have somebody like Jenny Wise Power, uh, a longtime member, a founder member of Cumann, a woman who's been in political activism and women's activism since her membership as a young woman of the Ladies' Land League. Um, had been through, you know, the whole Parnell era, was a Parnellite, had been in many of the organisations we mentioned at the top of the show, and was a very respected and senior member of Cumann Women like uh, Min Ryan, who was married to Richard Mulcahy, uh, took a pro-treaty stance. Uh, and those women leave Cumann and they set up a separate organisation of women who are supportive of the Free State and of the treaty called Cumann so as we head into civil war, we have two organizations of women now, Cumann and Cumann But even more complicated is you have Cumann branches in Cork who continue with the name Cumann, but actually are pro-treaty. Uh, I suppose the Collins effect uh, and the fact that the women there decided that they took the argument, uh, which the Cumann women had argued as well, that this was a stepping stone to freedom. Uh, that uh, getting this amount of from the British at this stage meant that a, a full republic would inevitably come down the line. And that was their argument. So the Cumann Searsha women campaign with the Irish Free State and with the government in the election uh, to consider the treaty uh, and obviously then are on the women's winning side. One very interesting facet of this is that the... Um, Women had been promised that all women over the age of 21 would get the vote once the uh, Irish Republic was set up. And this argument had been going back and forth throughout the period of, you know, since suffrage and the arguments between the nationalist women and the suffragette women and all that sort of thing. Uh, and the suffragette women argued that all women over the age of 21 should have the right to vote in that election to consider the treaty, but actually despite the promise given, and it is written into the 1922 constitution that women have the same right to vote uh, on an equal basis as men, um, which is earlier than actually the British women get the right to vote. They, they didn't expand the franchise, the female franchise in time for the treaty election. In part, I would think because there was a consideration that most young women who were members of Cumann would be anti-treaty. And they probably were right in that. 
And despite the delegation going to Griffith and to Collins to get that in, enhanced or expanded franchise for the women, uh, it didn't happen in time for the treaty vote. But it does happen in the 1922 Constitution. And when we talk about the Civil War as a, a, a war brother against brother, and it is, you know, the War of Independence was violent and horrible and awful, but it was a, a war of them and us. The Civil War is us and us. It is also a war between sister and sister, and, and um, the splits in the women's movement are long and bitter as well. Yeah, that's the thing about the Civil War, of course, is the emotional intensity and the, the feeling of betrayal people have. And Liz, what, what are the elements of it is, there's a certain discourse, let's say, on the pro-treaty side where the Civil War is women's fault, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The women do get blamed on causing the Civil War and emotional speeches and bringing up their dead, you know, in the debates. And Mrs. Pierce, as far as I know, that's the only one to mention her sons in the doll debate. But the men are making the emotional speeches. You know, if you look at De Valera's speech that he made, you know, leading up to the Civil War, famously saying, no way through Irish blood. And, you know, Arthur Griffith, on the other hand, saying, if we're going to have a civil war, let's have a civil war. The men are more dramatic than the women. And also you find that the men who were making these speeches weren't necessarily the ones that were on the forefront. So the women have every right to make their speeches, but aren't as dramatic as the men. Well, I suppose in the aftermath, you need someone to blame. I suppose it's easy to blame the women, but the women knew what they were fighting for and the treaty wasn't that. And I'd just like to sort of follow on from what Mary said about the women being given the franchise. As she said, the Free State Constitution did give the vote to everyone over the age of 21. And there is great debates in the doll between Shanti O'Kelly on the anti-treaty side and Griffith. And Shanti, and again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, is saying, why won't you update the register, give the women the vote in this treaty election that will happen in June 1922? And Griffith is saying, basically, um, he has no fear that the women of Ireland aren't behind the treaty, but it would just take too long to update the register. And Shanti says, well, they could do it in 1918, with a couple of months when that election happened, do it now. But as Mary had said, this majority of women that rejected the treaty and coming along were very young women, they would be those women that would get the vote. So there is every likelihood that the treaty would not have been passed by the public if they had been given that vote in 1922. And they were given the vote in 1923, I think the election that happened there. But that critical moment in 1922, it didn't happen because although Griffith said he trusted the women of Ireland, he really didn't. Well, Mary, we see a repeat of that type of gendered violence you were describing earlier happening during the Civil War and cases like the, the Ken Mare case down in Kerry. Mm. But there was, unfortunately, a continuation of these attacks against women during the Civil War. Yes, um, I mean, the attacks kind of come in spikes and, and, and waves, I suppose, in many ways during the War of Independence. A lot of the violence, not all of it, all my, in my research, I found that there are four attacks on women in, in, by both sides in almost every county. But the majority of the violence is in Munster and up the West Coast and some in Dublin. And then in, in from about spring 1922 to late summer, you have a, a huge spike in the border counties and in Belfast of uh, attacks on women by 
and it's very much from a sectarian basis. Um, you have attacks by the IRA on Protestant women, by orange men or the B specials on uh, Catholic women. And it's tit for tat, oftentimes in the same townlands or the same parishes. And you've um, a number of horrific rapes that happen, as well as, as this generalized attacks on women and forcible haircutting as part of that. And that kind of dies down. But when the civil war breaks out, then in what is the free state at this stage, again, you begin to see targeted violence against women. I suppose one of the big things about the civil war and women is the anti-treaty women are taken out early on by the free state who know how important they are to a guerrilla war, to the irregular side, I suppose, if we want to term it that. Uh, And you have hundreds of women being put in prison from early on, some of them for long periods of time, uh, many of them in Kilmainham Jail, Mountjoy Jail, and then the North Dublin Union. But you also have women being held for a week or two or three in local jails as well to basically frighten them off and warn them off. And then you have attacks on women. I'm particularly looking in at the moment to the Dublin Brigade in Kerry and its treatment. I mean, we know the horrible things that happened in Kerry during the Civil War, including, you know, the massacre in Nochnagosh and then the Ballyseedy massacre and Clash Milk and Caves and all of that. What is absent from that narrative is the treatment of women by the Dublin Brigade in particular. Uh, the famous case of the Kenmare case of two young girls, uh, daughters of a doctor in Kenmare, attacked by Paddy O'Daly, as we now know, and a couple of his uh, men. What they talk about is attack and being beaten up and having axle grease spread all over them. But there's also an implication that they were raped um, during this attack, and it would seem that they were. But you have other attacks. You have uh, women who were beaten up. You have uh, a number of um, murders that seem to stem from political standpoints of anti-treaty women talking about their politics. Uh, Some of them are regarded as accidental, but they are not, uh, it would seem. You also have attacks like, for example, in Killarney uh, in one night, uh, six houses were raided by the Free State forces, really, and all of the girls dragged out of their beds, beaten up and green paint poured all over them. So this sort of violence against women, on top of the violence that was happening in the prisons where the women were incarcerated, and we can look at Kilmainham and Mountjoy, where you have a lot of violence, particularly in the transfer to the North Dublin Union uh, and the hunger strikes the women went on. And you do have some women involved in that. There is uh, a lot of women talk about the women warders who were involved in the violence against them. So it's women on women violence. Uh, and the women uh, mentioned that they regard these women as members of Common Assertia or Common Searchers, as they were called by the Common Amon women. So that violence, that t- gendered targeted violence continues on through the civil war both in prison, but also out in the community. Uh, Because as Liz said, the women are blamed for the civil war. So there is a real bad feeling from the pro-treaty side, from the free state forces and the free state politicians towards these women, these unmanageable, ungovernable revolutionaries or furies or hysterics. Cosgrave says that these women in their ecstasies are mad for blood, basically. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And P.S. O'Hegarty said they, as women should be about the things of life, these women are about the things of death. Uh, and so that attitude towards women allows uh, a violence to enter both the dialogue and the discourse, but also physically towards women. 
And Liz, one of the differences, though, between the War of Independence and the Civil War is that Cumann and Man is much more centrally involved in the Republican kind of guerrilla effort, isn't there? There's much more accounts of women carrying arms and, and carrying out armed attacks. Yeah, Mary did say there earlier that the governments really were aware of how important the women were, especially in the Civil War. And they did try to get rid of them, get them out of the public arena early on, but it didn't really happen until early 1923. In terms of with the stars of Civil War, you see these amazing photographs. The one example I'll give is Calgary's funeral, where the women are forming the Guard of Honour. The women are marching in the funeral procession, but the women are also firing the guns over the graves of the dead Republicans. But in those early months of the Civil War, the women were falling through the net. The authorities weren't arresting them, they were arresting the men who were caught in raids and were, you know, at ambush sites and so on. But to get the women, the government bring in an amendment to the Emergency Powers Act that um, basically if they thought you were going to do something, you could be arrested. So you didn't actually have to do anything. And that's where you see then the massive swoops on the women in February and March 1923. One example I will give you in relation to just grabbing anyone, you have Kate Folan or Jake Folan, as she was known from Galway, and she was 15, and her sister was active, very active in the anti-treaty movement. And when the Free State Force came to the house to arrest her sister, her sister wasn't there. Now, Kate was a runner for the anti-treaty side. So rather than leave empty-handed, they took Kate and she was transferred up to Kermainham Jail. Now, her accounts of her time in Kermainham, through the eyes of a 15-year-old, things can look very different, but she had a great time in there. She used to play in the padded cell, like bounce off the walls and stuff. But then she was involved in that violence that Mary mentioned in the prisons, in that transfer to Mountjoy Jail, because the women basically refused to leave Kermainham. And what was really tragic about that scenario is that the violence that was being meted out to them was by people who they had known, people they, who they had fought side beside in the War of Independence, and it was vicious. Um, if anyone's been to Kermain and you'll know the East Swing, that main staircase, and it's really, really steep. It's metal. The women were dragged, kicked, beaten, pushed down those stairs, and there is very graphic descriptions of what went on. Well, Kate despite being involved in that, still look back at her time in Kermain was one of the best times in her life. The women were, were crucial to the anti-treaty IRA in terms of keeping up the support, keeping things going. And then another example I'll give you, as in women being there and being very, very active with Sheila Humphreys. But when the Free State Forces came to arrest Ernie O'Malley, who was staying in her home, there was a shootout. And she herself was involved in that shootout. Um, her aunt was shot and um, wounded. And her aunt, her mother and Sheila were arrested and in prison. So whereas in the War of Independence, British governments were slow on the uptake of how involved the women were, that was not the case with the Free State. They knew exactly how important the women were to carrying on the anti-treaty movement that support. They want to get them out of the way as quickly as possible. It happens in January 1923, and my God, the women pay the price for their support of the anti-treaty movement. And there's just kind of a follow-up question before we move on to the Free State and the post-Civil War period, is that 
you know, women activists continue to be very prominent in kind of very hardcore Republican anti-treaty politics afterwards. Like I'm thinking of Mary McSweeney particularly was the president of Sinn Féin afterwards for many years. Yeah, yeah, you did have the women um, being so carrying on their work because at the end of the day, what they had signed up for was not realised. They were very disillusioned by what transpired with the formation of the Free State and, you know, felt that maybe, and did feel that the Republican cause was not the agenda. It was not on the agenda anymore. And it turned out the Free State government were quite happy with the 26 county state that they had. And they probably felt that it fell to them to carry on that idea, to carry on that fight maybe not physically, but certainly to keep it in the minds of the people. And just like they had in 1916, if there was no one there to give voice to that movement, except them, well, then they had to do it, and they were quite prepared to do it. So, Mary, what type of state did these female activists and common man inherit in the 1920s after everything that they'd gone through during the War of Independence and the Civil War? Well, I suppose the women had always committed themselves to fighting for the republic that was proclaimed in 1916 uh, that guaranteed full and equal citizenship. And you could say that was reiterated in the 1922 constitution. But in many ways, that was the high point of achieving what they had been fighting for. Uh, And if we just take, for example, uh, legislation that was passed between 1922 and 1937, you can see the chipping away of women's access to the workplace, women's access to the public realm, the idealized Irish woman being constructed as married, mother, domestic, uh, between 22 and 37. And of course, 1937 has the infamous women in the home articles. And that doesn't come out of nowhere. De Valera doesn't invent that with John Charles McQuaid or anybody else he was was, uh, chatting to uh, in the course of writing the constitution. It comes out of a society that in its post-revolutionary period is obviously dealing with the trauma of violence. And we really can consider Ireland to have been a violent society for almost a decade at that stage. Not, you know, it's, it's much wider than just the war of independence and civil war. Where, as Liz said, the women are, uh, particularly political women, seen as hysterical, as a, a threat to society. Uh, I saw one um, newspaper article in in the early 1930s that said uh, the new terror in Ireland were women. Uh, And what they meant was by that was political women, feminist women, uh, Republican women. Uh, And so the women are seen as unstable, as hysterical, and therefore uh, women needed to become women again in that very narrow construct of what it meant to be the idealized Irish woman. Uh, Marianne Valulis writes a lot about it in her uh, articles and books about the Irish Free State, the first decade and a half of the Irish Free State, of how the private realm becomes the place of women, not the public realm, not politics, not economics, not uh, anywhere outside of the home. And the women were supposed to be there bringing up the next generation in happy family life. And that attitude continues. It's, it's church constructed, it's state constructed, it's uh, forced through by legislation, by speeches from the pulpit. Edward Cahill, for example, who was a member of the Jesuits, said he, he regretted that women had even been granted the vote at any stage because 
you know, having two votes in a house where a man and a woman might have a different opinion led to discord within the household and therefore women shouldn't have been given the vote in the first place. Uh, and that is the Irish free state that they get. And you see women then like uh, Kathleen Clark and Jane Skeffington, all the women we've mentioned, who continue to be activists, Margaret Skinner are among them, again and again campaigning against the introduction of, for example, the Juries Acts, which made it impossible for women to serve on juries, the marriage bar, which meant civil and public servant uh, women who had jobs in these areas had to give up on marriage, uh, the Conditions of Employment Act in 1935, which allowed a Minister for Labour to say women couldn't work in certain industries under Section 16, uh, then controlling their bodies under censorship laws, so access to information on contraceptives or um, proper sex education, secular sex education, is censored. And so basically what you get is a free state that has a particular view of women that is based on Catholic conservative religious thinking and secular conservative thinking uh, that see women as reproductive within marriage only. Obviously, we now know from the reports of the mother and baby homes and the Magdalene laundries and those histories that have come fully into light over the last number of decades that reproduction outside of marriage and women's sex life outside of marriage was punished by institutionalization in large part. And it's also a class issue. It's mostly poor working class women who are controlled uh, and marginalized and institutionalized by the state. And so what the women get is, um, it was a documentary I was involved in a few years ago, and I think it is very succinct in the title. It was No Country for Women at All. And finally, we're getting towards the end now, but Liz, if women were kind of written out of the picture of the independence struggle in the later 1920s and 30s, do you think that their memory was recovered to some extent during the centenaries of these events? Big time, yeah. Credit has to be given to Mary and the IWHS and local groups and historians for really, really making sure that the women were commemorated. We could do loads more. It, there was a big difference, obviously, between you know 1966 and the centenary commemorations in 2016, but the women were put back in the picture. My fear was that after 2016, that role would be just commemorated then and then forgotten about. But that didn't happen because the public got a huge, huge appetite and wants to know more about what the women did. So examples of the commemorations. And again, Mary was a driving force behind this. And I know we really had to push for it was to mark the formation of Coming Amon to get a plaque in Wynn's Hotel to acknowledge that Common Amon was founded in 2014. We had the naming of the Rosie Hackett Bridge after a campaign. In 2018, I co-organized a huge event for Law and Amon in City Hall and loads of little events sprang off from that. I know myself from just doing talks, the response from the public is amazing. And they are now being commemorated in events that are being looked at. So if it is the War of Independence, well, what did the women do? Where can we commemorate the women in that? So they're now being seen as a central part of the story, not a separate part of the story. And you've got women being commemorated in various different ways. As I said, like Rosie Hackett Bridge, things are being named after women. Granted, we could have a lot more things named after the women. We do have Thornton Heights. A housing estate up in uh, what was Michael Estate in Inchicore, just up from Richmond Barracks, named after Breedline Thornton, who was imprisoned in Richmond Barracks and, and later Kamenin 
yeah, after 1916. And one that I'm delighted to see, which is happening at the moment, but I would love to see more of it, is the road is being named after Lou Kennedy. And this is on the site of what was Teresa's Gardens, just by the North Avenue. And Margaret Lou Kennedy was a member of the Unina Branch. She was very militant. She was from the North Avenue and her name is the new road, Margaret Kennedy Road. She went on to become a senator in the 1930s. My hope would be that if there's any other roads in that complex that they'd be named after all of the Unina, Neheran, coming among women, but one road, it's a start. So the, the big difference is that the women are not being put back into the box. The people want to know and realize that you couldn't have had the success of the war of independence. The story of the Irish Revolutionary Movement cannot be told without the women. And there's amazing work being done on the ground, in academia, everywhere. And it is really, really fantastic to see and fantastic to be a part of. And I think the people, the public, just to build on what Liz has said, and, and I absolutely agree with her, the, the decade of centenaries has been so fantastic for the history of the revolutionary women and more broadly on women's history. Real hunger out there for these stories. And it's building on the back of 40 years of, of women's history that has been happening, you know, from the 1980s onwards. So, you know, there is that long um, the fantastic uh, inheritance that that we have of writing women back into the the history, but I just want to um, make mention of something that is happening. Liz mentioned the commemoration of Common Man we did in 2014. Well, we're now kind of bookending that as we come towards the end of the decade of centenaries. Although we still have to go through the Civil War, which will be interesting where the Women's History Association of Ireland's uh, conference this year, which will be virtual, of course, will be four Fridays in March, in which we will be discussing, as part of a broader conference, violence against women, women in the Revolutionary War, and generally women's history in Ireland. Uh, and I'd like to uh, promote that to the listeners, that that will be happening in March. So look out for that. But the decade of centenaries has been a boon, for women's history, for women historians as well, because mostly the women's history has been written by women's historians. And one thing that is good to see is a lot more of the male historians are now writing about women as well and writing them into that broader, fuller narrative. And that's been the aim all along. And that's been a fantastic part of this decade of centenaries as well. Uh, and I'm delighted also that my woman, Margaret Skinner, has a roundabout named after her in Monaghan and a beautiful commemorative, uh, it's not a statue, it is a, a kind of a wall, was unveiled recently in her father's old home outside of Monaghan town. Uh, and so the women are getting commemorated, not quite enough, but it is happening and we will continue to commemorate them as we move through this decade and on into the free state, obviously, as well. Well, thank you very much, Mary and Liz. We really appreciate that. That was a really fantastic discussion. So that was Dr. Mary McAuliffe and Liz Gillis. And if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. 
So until next time, my name is Cahill Brennan, and on behalf of myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.